Brother Jamie? Brother Samuel. Have you time for the cult-appointed pizza club? Wink. Do, do we get discount through? Wink. It's not the pizza club, for goodness sake. Uh, oh, oh, the, the, the club. Yes, um, shall I meet you on the fourth level of the crypts? There's a nice bone pile that we could uh, record this by. Yes, let's go to the bone zone. Hello and welcome to the Secret Society of Game Masters. I am Sam. And I'm Jamie. We are, as always, inside a secret cult of role-playing games, monks. <laughs> and and we one are here day to... they'll let us out. <gasps> one day we will see the sun. Until then, we have a large library of books and PDFs and still Twitter and Instagram. So you can actually follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SSOGMS. And that works for both of those. And if you need to get in contact with the show, you can email us at SSOGM at projectheadphones.com, which, you know, segues very well. But yes, we are here to share you the latest and greatest news and some of our thoughts on how to roll your, how to run your role playing games. I so want to roll what, some run playing games now. <laughs> roll some run playing games is very difficult. Uh, so this week we have news from where Dungeons and Dragons is heading, some interesting accessibility news from Dungeons and Dragons. We also have our monster of the week, which this week Jamie is the golems. The golems. We will have our notes to the GM, uh, which we will highlight splitting the party. And then from the tomes, the table. It's less menacing than it actually seems. But yes, that's what's coming up in our show. To start with, the news. I read an article on bellloflostsouls.net by J.R. Zambrano. It's about where's Dungeons & Dragons heading concerning how the recent Unearthed Arcanas come out. So, Jamie, I know you and I have read over some of the re the previous Unearthed Arcana from Jeremy Crawford, who is one of the rules writers at Wizards of the Coast, and we've we've quite liked what they're doing, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think last time we spoke about um, some of the Artificer and so on, and they seem to have dived in further with, what, another set of subclasses for about seven for classes, so... Yeah, it seems to be taking an interesting direction, as sort of this this article highlights. Yeah, the article really goes into not just you know they're just shoving more backgrounds and subclasses, but uh, it really seems to be pushing Dungeons and Dragons in a narrative aspect to really cover more of the bases and expand what each of the classes can do, which I think is great. Yeah, and if I was just to quickly highlight, I know we don't want to go too far in, because obviously you guys can feel free to download the PDFs from Unearthed Arcana and, and feel free to playtest play them to yourselves, but I really like the uh, the narrative feel that you can get with the Onomancy Wizard. So it's all centered around naming and, and using creatures' names and their power against against them and, and enhancing your own abilities through it. So it's, um, I know... I'm a huge fan, and I'm sure Sam is too, of uh, books by Patrick Rothfuss, uh, the name mm. of the movie being the first one, and it really resonates with me with that um, sort of use of naming as, a, as like a higher power, so it, it touches on that quite quite nicely, actually. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely going to be uh, interesting to play around with at the table. Uh, there was also discussion about, uh, again, we won't go into it deeply, but making some of the classes more accessible with pets and non-human and or non-sentient NPCs that you can move around and so I definitely would recommend checking that out. Also, Dragon Magazine, the Dungeons and Dragons literature, uh, has produced an article about sign language in Dungeons and Dragons because it's sometimes exclusionary to assume people have the same ability to uptake what you're giving out and the sign language in D&D article really helps to highlight look you know there are just there are sign languages in american sign language and british sign language that can enhance your table talk and i think it's really great uh, there's also a interesting discussion about 
how they've developed signs for things that haven't previously been part of the uh, lexicon. So would that I don't be know if you like managed monsters. to read that bit. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've had a quick scan through, so I'm assuming that would be like... Uh, I think one example they gave in there was trying to sign out like a sphinx or something like that, you know, something that's not necessarily easy in terms of descri- describing anyway because it's got so many composite parts like hmm. lion, human, etc. So it's it's how do you how would you sign that? So yeah, it's quite cool that they've started to come up with um different signs for different creatures like that. I enjoyed the elf, which seems to be just kind of mouthing the word elf and making pointed ears motion, <laughs> uh, which I thought was fantastic. But I recommend going to the Dragon Magazine article because there's loads of YouTubers who are doing sign language in both American Sign Language and British Sign Language, and they are really kind of paving the way. One of the British Sign Language guys is also creating new scientific terms to be used in British Sign Language. Uh, but there's a small section that I really liked about discussing how to sign ORC. Uh, so in BSL, I'm, I'm just abbreviating it now, uh, mm-hmm. BSL ORC was obviously a new word, so we didn't know what to put it in. But there is a symbol for bull and like evil. And so that's just the horns above the head. So they're kind of like the metal horns. You just place them on your forehead and then... He said, right, well, orcs are kind of evil and they kind of usually have these lower jaw tusks. So we just moved the horns to go under the jaw. Oh, cool. So, yeah, and he's just like, yeah, so we're just kind of making these. And it's a really nice community of space. And I want to engage with that a lot more. Because even if none of the people at my table have hearing loss or are deaf, I think it just adds something new, something interesting. I mean, I... I just seen that that elf sign and i'm definitely going to use that in my games going forward yeah. anyway but yeah i think it's uh it's a, it's a really good thing for them to do to make, make the game a bit more accessible and a bit easier it's because you know dms we know anyway have enough sort of things on their plate to, to worry about without having to try and figure out how am we going to communicate what this creature is to someone so yeah it's, it's really good of them to to be doing things like that and now we'll move on to Monster of the Week. Brother Jamie, take us away. Brother Samuel, let me open up our manual of monsters. And in here on page 167, you can see we have our description of golems. Now, golems are made from humble materials. Clay, flesh and bones, iron or stone. But they possess astonishing power and durability. A golem has no ambitions, needs no sustenance, feels no pain, and knows no remorse. An unstoppable juggernaut, it exists to follow its creator's orders, and it protects or attacks as that creator demands. So, as alluded to in there, there's um, sort of four main types of golems, your clay, mm-hmm. flesh, iron, and stone, and they are essentially constructs that have been created by either some sort of master artisan, maybe maybe a wizard with great power, or, or maybe someone who's come across some like lost knowledge, Um and they are essentially automatons in terms of they don't really have their own free will or don't think or feel. They are essentially created just to follow their master's orders. So they're, they're pretty good for things like um, guarding tombs or treasure or performing mundane tasks for, say, a wizard or something like that. So they're, they're quite interesting creatures to come across through settings like that. Yeah, I think they add a very dark and foreboding sense of this is just a giant construct that is here to destroy you or to guard something unlike something like the warforged where they have an actual sentient spirit inside them these are just you know as you said they're blindly obedient which is one of the uh descriptors of their uh that monster but i kind of like the fact that as part of creating these someone has to sculpt it so it either can be you or it can be a skilled artisan or in the case of the flesh golem a surgeon so someone has to actually make this construct and then you basically summon an elemental spirit and place it inside this body and and something about the whole process of that is just amazing i love it yeah and and they 
again, I, I, it's difficult not to relate things back to my current Curse of Stride, but being able to describe for the first time that this flesh golem that they came across was, was great because as they got closer, at first it sort of looked like a human and as they got closer they could see the stitching and so on and it, it, you can really get quite sort of visceral with some of it with your descriptions. So they're, they're really fun additions, I think, in, into your campaign, whether as maybe less, uh, maybe maybe it's a monster they have to fight, maybe it's guarding that tomb or whatever, or sometimes maybe they're just another part of the furniture. Maybe you, you go to the wizard tower and and receive your quest from him, and in the background you can just see, I don't know, different golems stacking shelves or something. It almost like you can add some richness to the world that way. Oh, definitely. And they've got really devastating actions. I remember as part of was it Rise of Tiamat? We were up against a clay golem? I think, was it an iron golem? I, uh, all I can remember is casting a fireball and not doing anything to it. Yeah, just I think it was an iron golem, yeah. Absolutely squat happened. It must, I think it must have been a clay golem because as part of the clay golem slam, allow me to read from the text, one target hits 16 or 2d10 plus 5 bludgeoning damage, if the target is a creature, it must succeed a DC 15 constitution saving throw or have its hit point maximum reduced by the amount of damage taken. If the target dies on, if this attack reaches its hit point maximum to zero. So I remember my character got absolutely slaughtered and we just <laughs> went, there's no, there's nothing left. Dead. Yeah, you're it's dead. It's not unconscious. There's, there's, you yeah. can't come back. From, yeah, exactly. I like the, the it's so brutally strong, and and I guess it, it leans into that that fact that it's uh, a construct that it doesn't have that self restraint to just hit you to the point of knocking you out or whatever. It is just using its full force. So yeah, yeah, and e- and even if you survive the encounter and go on, you can't just use your hit die or recharge up to your maximum using a long rest. You have to get a greater restoration spell. Or something that does a similar effect. Uh, well, that's just for the clay golem, but they all have such amazing abilities. Yeah, and what I think it's worth mentioning is the fact that they, there's, the four different types of golems cover quite a decent range of like levels that they, you could come up against them. So, flesh golem is the sort of lowest one is a challenge rating five. So that would mean a party of four level fives should be a, a good encounter or sort of medium encounter for them. Uh, you go up to the Clay Golem, which is a challenge rating 9, so it's a little bit stronger, and as you mentioned, has a, maybe a couple more um, features, like the, the that huge slam attack, there's uh, a haste action, some berserk and things like that, which we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on in a sec, because that's common across them, or across a couple of them, sorry. Um, you then go to the Stone Golem, which is challenge rating 10, so it's a little bit uh, tougher again, and then finally the Iron Golem, which is a challenge rating 16, so it's a really strong um, foe to come against. Yeah, and they and they're just, they, <laughs> it's just like magic resistance, immutable form, aversion to fire. These are really they're really good monsters to throw at your players when you need them to think around, around a, a monster's abilities and what it's resistant to, and just really kind of it's a great logic puzzle that will also smack your teeth out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's worth sort of bringing out this common to all of them it's different in terms of what um damage type they are but they all tend to have some sort of damage immunity or damage resistance um they all have condition immunities due to their construct natures because they don't basically they don't eat sleep or breathe so they can't be exhausted or put to sleep or or, or things like that so um there's some really interesting um, challenges there that your players may have to overcome to try and defeat one of these if, if they do find themselves in a, a sort of position where they have to fight. I also find the spell, because it's you aren't able to just cast this, you need a manual of in, golems. Is that in uh, terms of depend- creating one, Sam, yeah? Yes. So you need to have the manual for them, and it has to be specific to that type, so clay golem Manual of Clay Golem, Flesh Golem, Manual of Flesh Golem. And if you look at the descriptions in the Dungeon Master's Guide, it's, it's obviously they're all, all the books are corresponding to the materials that they're made out of. So the Flesh Golem one, 
the flesh golem one always freaks me out i hate flesh color just the idea of this (laughs) fleshy book that you have to go through what's presumably human vellum or something Uh, but the the idea is there's this really big spell it costs a lot of time and a lot of effort and you have to summon an elemental into this form that you have previously had created uh so the idea is there's an elemental spirit inside the golems and yeah so but the fact that this spell exists outside of the common spell list implies that there are more spells than the common spell list provides so nothing so if you wanted to make a spell that's just kind of outside of the limit as long as it conforms to the general rule set it is possible although just incredibly incredibly difficult and for more of that kind of understanding of how the spells work and and what you can do with Create Golem, I would recommend going to YouTube and checking out the animated spellbook by Z Bashu. Uh, he has a special one specifically for Create Golem, and I'd recommend checking it out. There's a few interesting tips in there which I would recommend springing on your players should should they be resistant to but one golem. I think um, it's quite interesting in touching on the um, creating your own spells or creating a golem. It's um, something that maybe you don't get as much with pre-written modules anyway, is that use of downtime. Because obviously, it, not only will it cost money to create these things, it also takes a lot of time to either come up with your own spell or, or create a clay golem, for instance. So um, maybe maybe we, we could do a feature in the, in the future that could talk, sort of touch on how to go about that or how ideas you could sort of implement if your players are struggling for what they would want to do in downtime but uh, that's that's quite a good example of what you could do in that sort of downtime between adventures definitely as a downtime action this is as you say very resource heavy very time heavy and downtime is something that is highlighted in a few of the texts i think we will definitely go into it more because it's it's a very exciting part of the role play which isn't always as exciting as people imagine it is but it i i find it genuinely enthralling but yes we will i'll put a note for downtime actions as a future subject and now we will move to notes to the gm these are dming issues either found on reddit or sent in from the listeners you can send those in to ssogm at projectheadphones.com this week we have a look at what happens when they want to split the party Brother Jamie? Cool. So I guess uh, this is something that's definitely happening a lot in my campaign. So it's a fun thing to sort of be able to do. I think, you know, touching on the the sort of stereotypical message that you will get from old players who will, you, you know, there's that adage of never split the party. Um, mm. And I guess the, the reason for that is generally because of how combat encounters are balanced and if you have less players than you're supposed to it becomes that much more difficult and more likely to die um and yes at times that there is dangerous to split the party but that i guess is something that your players will have to decide upon um it can be great in certain scenarios like they have multiple objectives they need to complete maybe in the same same sort of time frame and they won't be able to do both the same these two tasks if they did you know, all of you went to one of them and you wouldn't have time to complete the other. So maybe that's a scenario where you have to split the party. And um, I, I think we'll touch upon ways we can do it quite well um, and things you could maybe try and avoid. Um, but there are, there are a few different techniques I think you can use to try and make it more manageable and make it more fun for everyone at the table. But how about you, Hi. Sam? What, what's your sort of experience been with splitting the party? I have also had split the party moments. More recently, uh, as I said, I usually have a newer set of players and they're quite happy to go along all as a group. But as soon as they found out that actually having some amount of autonomy can make the play interesting. So we recently went to Waterdeep and there were several time-conflicting things that they needed to achieve. And so they naturally split up the group. I found that a lot of my players were quite happy to go along with the narrative and just see what other people were doing. But I was aware that, you know, this is a group that doesn't play too often, maybe like once or twice a month. And they needed to, they wanted to engage, you know, roll some dice at some point. 
So the way I did it was I basically followed one player all the way up until I could create a mini cliffhanger and then I'd swap back to the other group. Exactly. Until, That's such until a I could good make technique. another Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, especially when you can go from let's say and so you open the door to find So we'll go to the other group. Uh you guys are picking up potions. What's happening? And then everyone who is currently in that other group like, wait, what? No, what's happening? And, and you create that investment that, okay, I know I'm, we're going to have to take a quick break from my action because we have these other people to um, to give them their time. But I'm so excited to come back to, to me as well. So that's really good to keep, I think, player investment and engagement. Um, sorry, go on, Sam. I think you were going to say something. We were, uh, we, we've also watched a response by Matt Colville. Uh, who is a fanta- fantastic DM and always has really good advice. I'd recommend following him on YouTube and wherever he exists. Uh, he has also made the Stronghold and Followers uh, literature, which we will go into, and it's fantastic. But he presented a point which we agree with, which is the old guard and everybody pretty much says never split the party. Blah, 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 blah. And he's like, it's going to happen and or it's actually quite exciting. So he he detailed an account of where one player had to go off and fetch something, which was mission critical for the quest. And actually, no one else did anything other than that one player and the DM. But because because of the way that the DM kind of made it stressful because none of the other players are there to help out and this person was just a rogue and so... It was threatening at all times. And so allowed the DM and the player to create such a suspenseful session that everyone got to engage in the, in how tense it was and the atmosphere that was being created. So nobody else rolled any dice that night. They were able to play another day that week. But yeah, that sounds interesting to me. Would you ever run it? Um, so that, well, the way I tend to do, I mean, I mean, I think it's worth mentioning when we talk about splitting the party that we, I know we've touched on the combat side and that can be difficult. Um, I think the engagement side that you were alighting to earlier is a really key point. Like you don't want to go too long without people getting too bored, um, which is why those sort of cliffhangers can work really well and making sure that you're touching base with you know the other group enough that they are keeping engaged and it hasn't been like two hours or something without them doing anything. Um, one other way I've done dealt with that because, as you, I think you said, people people want to roll dice, like people want to mm. feel engaged and like they're doing something. Sometimes I've I in this campaign I'm running at the moment I have had longer stretches where it's been uh, a bit more difficult to try and get uh, keep switching between, and that mainly because that was combat based in one of the groups. And um, you can still switch between and create the dramatic moments that way if you wanted to split halfway through combat. That's completely viable. I just found it a little bit um, more mentally taxing of trying to figure out where they, I was then coming back to if I did that. So one thing I've done, um, I, I don't know if you've done something similar or, or would be willing to try it or think, no, Jamie, it's a stupid idea. But um, <laughs> sometimes I've had, you know, let's say two of my players have gone off uh, down the road, down a different path of the road to go do a different objective, whatever that may be. Uh, they've then come across... Uh, an encounter where they're being attacked by four skeletons and five undead wolves, like roll initiative. Now, at that point, you can control all the NPC monsters as normal if you want to do that. But what I've tried doing is saying, right, to the other guys who aren't in this scene, uh, okay, you're controlling these two wolves, you're controlling those two wolves, Ooh. and you're controlling the skeletons. And I'll give them a quick... This is the... like In that example, is they might not have an objective, but the NPC monsters might have objectives, and I might give them those. And I'll say, right, here's the stats for them. You... You do it. And it's been really fun, actually. The, the players have really um, got on board with almost role-playing as monsters and um, keeps them engaged for that period of time. It gives me a quick... I can make more notes on what's going on and things I want to run in the session based off what's happened. Um, and there's almost been like a slightly sadistic streak of, of the players <laughs> wanting to kill the other players with their monsters. And it's all in good fun. It's not, it's not malicious or anything, but... I found in my in my experience that's really worked for me, um, mainly because there's been so much splitting of the party. So I've had to try things like that. But I don't know if you've done anything similar, Sam. But 
I would definitely recommend. No, I found that a really fascinating way to do it. I think I'm going to pick that up next time. Uh, But you're right, you can't... Switching combat in the way I detailed earlier can be really taxing for the DM and a little bit breaking for the players as well because they're going to be like, okay, well, I was mid-swing there and then then getting back into the moment is difficult. But getting the other players to essentially (laughs) pit them against their fellow players is... I would I would be very interested to see how your group deal with it at least because just because maybe maybe it's just my players are really sadistic or just want to kill each other but there is definitely an added tension from it. I can see some situations coming up soon where that may become necessary even if I have (laughs) to engineer them wholeheartedly just to see how they do. Uh, Yeah, I like that, Uh, and there is something to be said for splitting the experience entirely running different sessions i know we've done it for campaigns we've been in we've even run separate campaigns in the same universe where we did start out all i think there was 10 of us playing and myself and our friend jordan were co-dming and then the parties had different things so they split off and then unfortunately we didn't get a chance to bring everything back together but sharing different experiences by two different parties in one consistent universe can be really interesting. Especially when you hear about the deeds of the other group and you're like, wait, that's those guys. And you want to do cool things and hope that that will get back to them through, you know, rumors or whatever in the world. Yeah, you go go to a town that your party's never been to and then the bar owner goes, "Ah, adventurers again, I just got rid of you guys. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, what happened? Just, yeah, running that. I, I think... I have also run a really good tester for this and how to run it is pick up a board game called Betrayal at House on the Hill. Either the Baldur's Gate version, which Wizards of the Coast also make, uh, because you get through that game and at some point a haunt happens where you, where one of the characters becomes a traitor. And then you say one of the characters, it's always me, Sam, so. It's always, um, yeah, it is always Jamie. Uh, that is <laughs> in the rule book. It says whenever the traitor is revealed, it is always Jamie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was just fantastic. What happened was there was just a series. We were playing games for over a couple of days, but Jamie always had the bad luck of becoming the traitor. So we just wrote it in that Jamie was the traitor in the rules. <laughs> so that is now the meme, unfortunately. I'm yeah. always the betrayer. Even when I'm not the betrayer, I have been the betrayer. <laughs> but what that game teaches you is. It has a asymmetrical rule sets for the heroes and the traitor, and so they each have to achieve different things, and they're split off. And it's encouraged for one person to go into the room, another room to read their rules, and someone else to stay in their room. And having a split play, then contributing to an overall narrative, is really interesting. And I'm not saying you know you have to pit your players in verse in player versus player. Conf- confrontations in Dungeons and Dragons because the rule set isn't made well for that. But being able to run two different things in one setting, it can be really rewarding when everyone comes at the end and says, oh, was that what was happening? And when the players communicate to one another about what's happening. Because when you split a group, uh, like in Matt Colville's example, when the players come back together and they get he gets them to communicate to one another what's happened in the meantime, other than uh, other than they just say to the GM, oh, you know, I tell them that what happens. Because have you experienced that kind of offhand, off-cuff remark? Yeah, and I think that's something I will always try and encourage. No, 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 like, it's a really good opportunity to roleplay. Why don't you explain to each other what, what you've been through and what's happened and, you know... The players should then, uh, if, as they get more and more comfortable role-playing with each other especially, they should get uh, better at that and be able to get new little offshoots of, of what they're going to do with role-playing off that. So it's a really, I think, some some players aren't aren't that comfortable with it and will just say, and we just catch each other up. And that and that's fine. If that's how you want to play your game, then that, that no problem. I just think personally that you're missing out on an, on an opportunity to enrich your sort of role-playing experience with each other. Oh, for sure. And you can, at that point, because the rest of the players have been in the game, the player knows what's happened, but the character might not. So 
when the character's relaying some information, you can always leave some bits out. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. I, I refer to our ever, ever wonderful uh, Critical Role uh, does this wonderfully where a couple of people will split the group off and they'll have their own little crazy adventure and they will withhold certain amounts of information from the rest of the group. I'm looking at you, Sam Regal. <laughs> um, one other thing I think it's worth mentioning before we move on from this topic, um, and again, we've alluded to it, it, it can be quite taxing, it can be quite um, tiring for you as a, as a DM to constantly be running for split parties. So, you know, obviously give it a go if, if you're comfortable with doing it. If you're not, then feel free to say to your players that... you you know, you want um, a little bit more experience before you try that, or can we run, as Sam suggested earlier, can we do this in a slightly separate session so that um, you can run just for who's there and you're not having to worry about keeping everyone else engaged? And that's fine. I think that's something that, as you get more and more comfortable with, you'll probably get better at anyway. Um, but just bear in mind that it is it is quite tiring. So, you know, if you're getting to a point in the, in the session where you don't think you can keep going, then feel free to call it early as well. That's always a, an option. Yeah, ne- never, never feel pressured in running a split party the way the players want. If you are uncomfortable doing it, or it's just too taxing, because we're all here to play a game, and if it's too much to handle, which is fine. I mean, let's say it's a high level campaign where lots of political intrigues happening as well as combat in two different situations. Just section off and understand how best you would run it yeah at the end of the day you're a player as well as well as you being called a dm you are there to have fun so just bear that in mind as well anything else to mention on that section i think i'm good sam shall we go to the tomes let's go to the tomes in this week's feature segment we are talking about the table more to the point of how do you set up your table? What are the player seating positions and all sorts of other things? So, Jamie, please talk me through your setup. Okay. Um, I'm not, I've never had a particular, um, preference in terms of where players seat themselves. So I've generally left that to themselves, but I know you, you probably have different experience, so you can touch on that. Um, in terms of what I do behind the screen, I like to have uh, a notepad just to note down things for combat or any other quick notes I need, uh, which are maybe plot-relevant things I will want to touch on later. I like to have a little dice tray to roll in. I use an iPad for OneNote, which I think is an amazing tool that all DMs should be using if they're comfortable with technology, and we will have to cover it later. Um, Certainly. But yeah, I refer to my OneNote on my iPad and just can control music that's Bluetooth to a speaker from there. Um, obviously, I like to have a DM screen in front of me, which uh, I think some of the um, Wizard of the Coast ones that they released are really good for having things like you know, condition rules and things like that to refer back to quickly without having to go to the player's handbook. Um, and I, I do keep a, a note or two to myself on there. Like if there's, a, let's say, a session I want to run a particular... Um, story beat that's really important and I mustn't forget about, then I'll, I'll put it on there and maybe a post-it note or something. Um, and I have a little a little series of lines, which mainly because I'm a newer or I was a newer DM, um, I put this on just to give myself uh, a reminder of what sort of things to cover in descriptions. You know, if you're reading from like a, a pre-made adventure text, then a lot of that's given to you, but some of, sometimes you have to come up with new scenes or, or whatever. So I, that, I like to use that to give me ideas of what I need to cover in that. So just very quickly, that, that's that got a few steps, which are set the scene, so give some background details of what's what's around, what's there, add a detail, add a goal, give some points of interest, and provide some sort of emergency or obstacle that's very immediate that gives the players uh, something to jump into. Um, I think I got that from the Angry GM, which is another really good blog online, if, if you've ever come across it. Um, some good... Uh, some good points get raised on there, although in a very shouty manner at times. But that, that's his thing. So, um, yeah, that's my my main setup. How about how about you, Sam? What do you what does your setup look like? Well, I was going to go back to how you 
describe things so I, I think that's a really good way to do it kind of that format then allows the players to uh, the regularity of that format allows the players to understand what's happening and as you say you've added goals points of interest and obstacles which they can then engage in for a number of times i've always made places that i've under described not deliberately you know i'll just go yep there's a there's a cave with a lake in and they go right cool and then they go um uh, are there stalactites? I'm like, oh yeah, no, sorry, yeah, there are stalactites. So like, as you say, points of interest or obstacles for them to engage with, unless they're prompted to know it's there, and unless they're very willing to kind of co-create the space with you, then they may not know what's happening. Like, they don't know that that's there to interact with. So yeah, I really like that list. Yeah, as Um, I say, for me, that was more of a, I'm new to DMing and I'm a little bit... um, nervous about making my descriptions good that was one area i thought i needed to improve on so that, that was just always a reminder to myself so dm screens are good for, for hiding away little things like that <laughs> i there's there's always that infamous joke where uh dm screens are fantastic for fudging roles as well especially with newer players and the dm and i've often rolled a couple of crits and i go oh and then they just look at me like what and i'm like and I'd looking at the dice going, that's going to kill off that character and that's too much right now. I'll go, oh, I just missed. So, so close. Yeah. And, and the DM screen's really good for, for just, just to roll back to fudging rolls. I personally will do it every now and then and it's only ever in the player favor because similarly, I don't, I don't have a desire to kill my players. Like sometimes it happens and it makes sense to. Sometimes you just don't want your players to die because of bad rolls or good rolls in the DM's case. So, mm. yeah, I think having a DM screen is really good for that. It's less of a, I want to make sure I can keep everything secret from the group because I am the DM and it must be so. It's more of a trying to make sure they have a good time as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in terms of table setup, now we used to, you and I, used to play in a campaign where we used to sit around on a couple of sofas and some armchairs and play over a coffee table. Yeah. That was really comfortable and really good for the sessions that we were running because they were like six, seven hours long. They were very long sessions and it was nice to be comfortable. The downside that we always had was players felt really relaxed and very comfortable and so they easily drifted off, were tired, would start playing with their phones and weren't always attentive to the table. Yeah, so I think that, because there was a bit of distance between the sofa and the fact you could lean back quite nicely into them and the oh, table yeah. itself meant that, yeah, you, you had a little bit of a disconnect there if you weren't being completely on it, which is which happens over longer sessions. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is something to say, to be said for maintaining concentration and taking breaks for that kind of thing. But we were really fighting against the campaign there. And so we found that sofa play doesn't really work for us so i've moved to the dining room table we are lucky enough to have a space where that happens but as i said i've got you know seven players and me now so they're all on the dining room table and there's actually not enough room for me and my setup so i'm on a smaller table which kind of joins on we will i'm gonna try and get a picture for the instagram so this makes sense as a as an audio medium it doesn't work very well for (laughs) But yes, so I've got an adjoining table that I kind of plonk onto this circular dining room table with all my stuff on. And it's just me in a chair and everyone else can fit around. Uh, And so that allows all the players to see me prominently without me being blocked by some of the other players. And on my table, I have a very similar setup. Uh, As I am right-handed, I have my dice and a dice rolling tray on my left. In the middle, I have my Chromebook, which has OneNote on it, the superior and only form of interactive (laughs) DMing notes. Um, But unfortunately, my Chromebook doesn't like to run the OneNote app, and so we'll only use it via the web. And Uh, yeah, the the netcode's not great for the actual web version. But, you know, I've invested maybe tens of hundreds, a long time writing all my notes into there, so it's staying there. Um, And then on my right, I have my notebook. And usually I've got some little condition tokens and some other things just next to me there. And yeah, I've got the same DM screen that you have. It's the um, bit more folio work here. Yeah. It's the enhanced one, which has the red dragon 
Yeah, it was like a remastered type DM screen, wasn't it? I, I yeah, because the original really nice. one was okay, but the remastered one just had so much on it. And if you haven't got it already, it's a really good cheat sheet for everyone, and it, it literally does everything that you could want it to. And condition effects, and setting DCs, and oh, it's great. Uh, there are obviously customized DM screens, which are really good, but you have to toe that fine line between having your notes and stuff obscured so there's a little bit of intrigue for the players and being obscured yourself. Um, Interestingly, you the DM... I can't remember... Who, sorry to cut across. Interestingly, I can't remember which um, DM it was, but someone like Gary Gygax, I don't think it was him himself, but maybe one of the earlier DMs who was a bit more famous in D&D uh, history, used to really like a massive DM screen because they like to be cut off from the players and so that I think like voices and stuff they would do would feel more like it was some character they were doing than themselves. Wouldn't work for me, but I, apparently some some people like stuff like that. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I can feel that that can become quite exclusionary, but I can also see the benefit. You know, you, you can hide more behind that screen and you can create more of a dissonance between you as a person and the environment that you're carving. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's my setup. But my players, I tactically have placed in certain positions. Now, I have uh, some players that are not quite tall. So I have experienced games where they've been in the corner of a corner sofa or they've been in a different position and they routinely get ignored, not deliberately, but people just can't see them and so can't interact with them as a player. And so they, whenever they try and do something, they're sometimes shouted across or ignored. So I place them in positions where they can dominate everybody's sight lines or where they're very easily heard. Now, luckily in this table, I don't need to do that. It's a circular table. Everyone's got an equal share of that table. Uh, but I have paired players together. Like we've previously said, I've got two druids and druids are very complicated classes to run. So I've paired my druids together. I've paired uh, some of my more martial classes together, and I've and it's kind of quite easily interspersed. So actually, not dictating where your players should sit, but possibly say, "Look, why don't you sit here this week?" And kind of mixing it around until the game runs fairly well. Because uh, I don't know whether people can hear this, but I've actually moved house. Uh, I sound different to the last one, <laughs> and my players sit in the same spaces at the new house than they did at the old one. Oh, yeah, we're, we are creatures of routine and habit, after all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so I, I have that set up, and I also have an Amazon Alexa that pumps music through. Now, Jamie, what do you do in terms of music? It's so a I, little bit contentious sometimes. I am such a huge proponent of music at your table. Um, I love having... It doesn't have to... And it doesn't have to dominate the table or anything like that. I remember, I think it was during the Rise of Tiamat one, I, I sort of commandeered taking over the music on the on the telly, I think, or the speaker we were using, because I, I think it just adds a bit more ambience and such. If you've got um, something kind of fantasy-based or whatever, whatever's appropriate for your campaign in the background. So personally, uh, I've got... a a shed load of Spotify playlists, which I've curated over um, quite quite a while. And, and you can come across uh, Reddit's a really good place to try and find other people's playlists to give, maybe give yourself a good place to start. Um, so I'll take stuff from um, fantasy movies or video games, places, things like that. So like the witch is a really good one to use or mm. some, some of the um, uh, like oblivion or uh, Skyrim soundtracks are really good for some of that stuff. Um, and I'll curate those into different playlists, which I like to set by either mood or location. So something like uh, a general playlist for like a tense moments, like maybe the sneak your players are sneaking past guards or some something where they need to be quiet and, and any sort of spike in the music can give that, oh shit, we have to watch out for, the, for that guard looking over there or, or, what, or whatever. Um, I like, I have one for like general towns or taverns. I have... Um, ones for battle, which are obviously much more pumped up and, tr and try and get the players more on the edge of their seats. Um, and even I have like a little intro uh, playlist for Curse of Strahd that I'm running at the moment, which is more just to get them into the mood of, okay, we're back in Barovia, this is what's happening. Um, as I say, I'm a huge proponent for it. 
how, how what's your sort of experience with it sam do you do you constantly have music on do you put them in in, in certain scenarios or how do, how do you how do you use it i like you have certain setting i don't i haven't I haven't dedicated as much time to creating playlists as I should because every game I just go, ah, crap, I just need town music. I just need to press a button that says town music. And, yeah, I usually just scroll up and down the Witcher playlist or there was a band that you and I quite like, like uh, Utram or something. I can't remember. You introduced it to me at one New Year's Eve party and I've just been this fantastic kind of um, uh, medieval music that's just great in a setting there's, there's two uh, steps if, from hell there's people like that who've got some really yeah, good stuff like that if you want i tend to find that i lean more towards video game soundtracks because they've got longer track times because yeah. instead of just being a, a track and a song in a movie where it only needs to play for two minutes or so you know video game soundtracks last you know 10 12 minutes so that can be quite good uh there's also lots of stuff on youtube I use a lot of YouTube sounds. There's uh, there's a particular artist who's very specialised in doing background atmospheric soundtracks. I will make sure to make a list, a link in the description. But there's one where they do some occult ritual music, and it's really unnerving. It's yeah. just a constant drone with some chanting in the background. It's so unnerving. And there are a couple of there are a couple of uh, big bad guys in my campaign that always have that music on when they're present. That's or such when a they're... good thing, Sam. I love the, the having a little theme or a light motif if you're musically. Um, yeah. So if I manage to do that, and then the players go, "Oh no," it's it's me trying to express how you feel yeah. when you can get into. A person's aura. Like, if, if you, when you go into certain buildings or meet certain people, you know they exude a certain amount of energy. And that's always hard to just say rather than say they exude a certain amount of energy. And the players go, yeah, sure. But if you <laughs> always play the unnerving ritualistic occult soundtrack whenever they're doing stuff, I've had players freak out because they're like, this music's gone on for like half an hour. I don't hate it, <laughs> but I'm not comfortable. Like, my character's not comfortable in what's happening. Yeah. So I, I tend to use it more as thematic stings, like you were saying. Yeah, so, like, for instance, Darth Vader walking on onto screen in Star Wars will have his... Duh, 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 duh. Yeah, always that, the Imperial that, March. Yeah, exactly. That keys you in of, oh, my God, this guy's bad. These are the things I already know about. Like, like, it triggers things in your mind, as you say. So that's a really good idea, actually. That's something I need to do more. Um there are really good apps like Sirenscape if you want to go down the soundboarding as well as um, mm. music, which I'm trying to start to get into, but it, it's a little bit more faff, so I'm, I'm, I'm learning on that one, to be honest. Um, YouTube's a really good resource for, you can get like hour-long ambience soundtracks, similar to, as you mentioned, with Occult, you can get Forest or um, Rain or you know things like that, which add a bit more immersion if, if that's where you, you like to go. Um, so yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of really good resources out there which should you know, just a sort of Google search away. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I tend to find some kind of Bluetooth speaker network to if you're running it off a laptop or if you've just got your phone next to you, just run it off that. It can be yeah. quite seamless because you can do that behind the DM screen and then click a button without saying, you know, oh, can you change the track to? And most of us have some form of Bluetooth speaker, but, you know, yeah, if I had to recommend one, Alexa's got a really good bass speaker on it. Surprisingly, for such a small mm. thing, I um, think we—that's what we use actually in ours, not by design, just because that's the one that a player whose house we use has got. But um, one other thing, I guess, if you're not, um, maybe if you're a bit worried about being overwhelmed by everything that's going on as well, and then have adding music mm. on, maybe one of that's a job for one of the players to do. Maybe you can. Maybe there's someone who's into that sort of thing. Like as I say, I think I did it mostly for when. Uh, Chris, our friend, was DMing Rise of Tiamat, mainly because I took it upon myself. But um, you could you could ask one of the players to do that, and I'm sure they'd be more than happy to do so. Oh yeah, that that be that's another way of really getting people to interact that way. You know, especially if they're not necessarily playing a lot. Let's say they they've got quite a passive character, but you know they're really good at finding playlists. That's a really smart idea. I like that.
Do you have anything else to say about the table? Um, I don't think there's anything else from me, Sam. How about you? Have you got anything, um, anything else you particularly do at the table to get yourself ready or to um, contribute I, to what the session has? Because of the nature of my work, I've usually quite a lot of time between when I'm ready and when the players arrive. So I've got a lot of setup time. So usually it's me managing everything, uh, printing out extra extra notes and handouts for the players. So that amount of setup time gets me in the mood. But I but I also remember a lot of times when I've had to basically run home and throw all the stuff together whilst they're eating or something. For some reason, I don't know what it is, but when I'm DMing, I eat less than when I'm playing. Absolutely. I think it's because I'm, I'm doing more. But I, I notice that my portion sizes go way down because I'm like, mm, 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 yeah, uh, you go hit the elf, whatever. <laughs> it's not very good to do with a mouthful of food. Yeah, we we always get a Chinese when we when we play. I think that's our little D and D ritual. Um, mm. And I will always um, so I'll gra- we'll all grab a plate. We'll we'll eat, and I think I'm a, maybe I'm a slower eater anyway. But I'm I'm never like finish what I would normally eat by the time we're all ready to go. So I will invariably not finish what I've got on my plate, or, <laughs> and that's fine because I, I think as you say, you're kind of ready to get back into it. And uh, I'm less I think I'm less worried about food than I am about this session at that point anyway. Yeah, I think yeah, but. Um, in shorthand and in summary of what our points are, get stuff that will key your players into whatever you're doing. I mean, we, I've got like tankards and like drinking horns that I can give to the players to like drink their normal stuff out of. It's just stuff to kind of let people know we're having a game. This is a familiar format for you now. So, you know, we're ready to play. Basically everything points to I'm ready. Are you ready? Let's go. Yeah, exactly. The secret society of game masters would like you to make your games more ritualistic, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you very much for joining us this week on the secret society of game masters. I have been Brother Samuel. And as ever, I have been Brother Jamie. You can now follow us on various social medias. We have Twitter and Instagram at the same address at S-S-O-G-M-S. We also have a Facebook group, which is the Project Headphones group. Lots of interesting and mindful listeners there willing to share their thoughts. I encourage you to click those links. And don't be afraid to check out the show notes where we'll have links to everything we've discussed. Our music was given to us by Kevin MacLeod. The main music is Agnes Deer X, and our stings are Dance Macabre Big Hit 1, If you would like to get these and many more, please go to incomputech.com. These are covered under the Creative Commons license number three. Thank you very much for joining us. I have been Brother Samuel. And I have been Brother Jamie. We will catch you next time.